Well, welcome to the closing Dharma talk of uh, this two weekend long retreat, four days of retreat time there. Uh, and I want to thank Riss uh, for the amazing job that she's done uh, putting all of this together. Uh, no easy feat for sure. Uh, and congratulations to you all. I said this at the last Dharma talk, but uh, just to reiterate, uh, it's wonderful to take time out uh, to engage yourself in a deeper way, in a more loving, in a more compassionate way. So congratulations to you all for uh, making that decision and uh, sticking to it and attending to however much of this uh, wonderful retreat as you could possibly do. Now today, in this talk, I'm going to talk about uh, a mindfulness meditation practice, but quite different uh, than the mindfulness meditation that seems to be uh, so popular nowadays, seems to be sweeping across uh, America and Europe. That and there's nothing wrong with that practice, by the way. I also do uh, mindfulness of the breath practice. I think it's a wonderful practice. Uh, it comes from the Vipassana tradition, uh, which makes its home here in Thailand mostly nowadays, although it comes from Burma uh, originally. So Burma, Myanmar, uh, which is the same, uh, Thailand, uh, Laos, Sri Lanka, those countries really uh, enjoy the Vipassana meditation, uh, starting mindfulness with the breath, and then as your thoughts go, you come back, observing that process over and over again. Now, the mindfulness practice that I'm going to outline here in this talk is, uh, comes from the Tibetan tradition, and it starts very similarly. Uh, but this practice really allows one to embrace the entire present moment as fully as possible. So systematically going through the present moment in stages, opening up to more and more and more of the present moment, in a, a radical embrace of the present moment, as I like to put it. Now, some of you, particularly if you've been to New Life before, while I've been there, uh, you might be familiar with this practice. It's a practice that I've uh, created out of two different Tibetan practices. I call this uh, Such Sweet Thunder. Uh, you can reference the website, my website, uh, suchsweetthunder.org, uh, for more information about the practice and how it's done and so forth. So before we start all of that, I just want to talk about some of the uh, many health benefits uh, that this type of practice has been cited for. We know that it lowers our blood pressure, our heart rate, 
It reduces stress. It reduces our risk of heart attack or stroke. Uh, it also boosts the immune system, quite important uh, in this current world crisis. Uh, so um, many health benefits that we're starting to see. But really, this practice was created or designed to allow one to cultivate a heightened sense of awareness and attention. And with that heightened sense of awareness and attention, we turn that around to our own self. And that's called insight. And that uh, brings up insights into our own condition, our own human condition. Uh, and that can be quite profound. Now that, those insights can start at any time uh, once one starts one of these practices. Uh, it can happen after the first few days, or it might happen after a first year or so, but anywhere in the window from the starting of the practice and throughout your career uh, with this practice, uh, those insights can and do reveal themselves. Now, I also should mention that uh, as we take up this practice, uh, we might not have many insights or any at all for quite some time, and that's fine. That doesn't mean you're doing the practice wrong or the practice is being ineffective. But what I, what I recommend you do is if you start a practice like this, you give it six months. And you can even mark on your calendar, okay, today is the day I'm starting uh, this Tibetan mindfulness practice, this such sweet thunder practice. And then mark that day on the calendar, and then if you do it consistency, consistently rather every day, turn around after six months and examine how you experience your life. Examine how you relate to yourself and to the world. Uh, if you do that, uh, you will most likely notice some changes there. Now, if you don't notice any changes, it might be that this practice doesn't resonate with you, and that's fine. That's why there are literally hundreds and hundreds of different types of meditation practices. Because sometimes it doesn't resonate with us. Sometimes there isn't a shift elicited by this particular practice. And that's, you know, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But at least uh, giving it six months, you give it a fair trial like that. So welcome to such sweet thunder. Now, when the Buddha was teaching, when he was alive, uh, he would often respond to the question, what are you teaching, Buddha? What, what is this that you do? He would respond, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And so as this talk unfolds, we'll take a look at how this particular meditation practice does allow us to alleviate our own suffering. So as I mentioned, this starts, uh, this is a mindfulness practice and it unfolds in stages and it starts with the breath. Uh, just like 
the Vipassana mindfulness that you might be familiar with already. So we start here with the nose. Generally, that's where we start with the breath. You can start with the abdomen if you find that's uh, more accessible. Uh, sometimes people find they can feel the abdomen rising and falling or the air filling the abdomen uh, easier. They can, then they can feel uh, the breath at the nose. Nothing wrong with that. So feeling the breath entering and leaving the nose. And just noticing the subtle sensations there. And we really open to that experience of the breath. Opening to the experience of the breath, touching the back of the throat. And then we expand to notice the rib cage moving with the breath, the lungs filling with air and emptying air. Uh, noticing the abdomen rising and falling. You might also notice the back moving with each breath in and out, the shoulders rising and falling. You might notice the body straightening up as you're breathing in and leaning forward as you breathe out, like that. And so it is this experience of starting small, awareness starting small at the nose. And then you allow awareness to expand, to include the back of the throat. So now you're holding the nose and the back of the throat. Then you allow awareness to expand again, to include the rib cage area the abdomen, and so forth. So it's this experience of awareness getting slightly larger as we go. Now, it's quite normal to start with the nose, the back of the throat, you get to the rib cage, maybe even the abdomen, and you've forgotten about the nose. That's, that's okay. That's why it's a practice. And it just takes a little bit of time to allow awareness to get larger and larger and stronger and stronger enough to hold all of the breath in awareness at the same time. Now, if you've already been practicing meditation, that might come quite naturally to you, and that's fine too. Now, during this process, there will be thoughts. That's a normal, natural part of the meditation experience. Uh, we all, we're all thinking beings. And so the process here that I recommend is that anytime you're distracted by your thoughts, you label that with the word thinking. What that does is that puts the light of awareness on the unaware state of distraction, right? If you're distracted by thoughts, you're just up here in those thoughts. You're not aware of the present moment anymore. You're not aware of the breath entering and leaving the body. You're just up here thinking about, oh, I have to start work tomorrow, and wow, that'll be cool. I haven't worked in a while. And, wow, that'll be great. And, oh, I should call my brother. I haven't talked to my brother in a while. I wonder what my brother's doing. Oh, he's got those strange dogs. Oh, I'm thinking. So as soon as you notice that you're up here in your thoughts, you say that word thinking, and those thoughts will dissolve. And then you come back to the present moment experience. Now probably there's another thought coming up right after that. And that's fine. That's normal. Yeah, and, and 
my brother does this. I, I never liked dogs the way my brother did. I always fond of cats. I don't know why. It's strange. We grew up in the same household and we have such different opinions about things. I really should call him. I wonder. Oh, I'm thinking again. Thinking. That thought dissolves again. And another thought's probably coming up right after that. And this, this is a normal part of meditation. So what we're doing there, each time we get distracted by that thought, we say thinking, we come back to the present moment, get distracted by the thought, thinking, come back to the present moment. It's like we're lifting weights. We're strengthening the muscle of awareness and attention. We're getting uh, stronger at the ability to be in the present moment. And as we strengthen that awareness, as we get stronger with our attention, it gets easier and easier to sense the gap in between the thoughts. And you'll start to notice that there's a space in between the thought that was taking us away, we say thinking, and the next thought that's coming up, there's a gap. There's a space there in between those thoughts. And as one of my teachers often said, that gap might be just fine enough to get a hair through, but it's there. And so with that heightened sense of awareness and attention that we're beginning to cultivate each time we get distracted in return, with that strength in awareness and attention, we start to be able to rest in that gap in between the thoughts. And that's how we start to cultivate a sense of peace a sense of spaciousness, a sense of silence in the thinking mind. See, that, that space, that silence is always there. But it's just that our mind is too active with thoughts generally. We're too hypnotized by our thinking mind to notice the silence in between the thoughts. But it's there. And so gradually, slowly, we're teasing apart the thoughts and allowing that silence to emerge from in between the thoughts themselves. So it's not like, not that we're, we want to force our mind to stop thinking, but it's actually a much more restful, much more relaxed process than that. So just noting thinking, coming back. There's no effort. You don't have to push the thoughts away. You just label it with the word thinking, You'll notice the thought dissolves rather effortlessly. Okay, so we're resting with the breath. And then we expand out through the body. And you can do a complete body scanning practice here. Now, generally I like to start from the top of the head and go to the bottoms of the feet. Like that. Um, but you can go from the bottoms of the feet to the top of the head. That's fine. And as we go through the body, we invite the muscles in the body to rest. Letting any stress or tension that's held in the body go. Now that resting quality is, is quite important in this meditation. And I'll get to more of the resting quality of this meditation as this talk unfolds. So noticing the breath, noticing the body. Then we expand again, our awareness getting slightly larger. Uh, we expand to include the sensory experience. 
And here uh, we'll use, or I'll talk about, the senses of hearing, of sight, and of touch. We won't use the sense of smell so much because that's kind of ephemeral. Uh, unless there's incense that you like that's burning nearby, or maybe somebody mowed the lawn recently or something. If there's very pungent odor, perhaps there's garlic co cooking nearby, uh, then you can include that into the meditation. The idea of this meditation, again, is to embrace everything that's arising. We don't want to keep anything out like that. So senses, and then we open our awareness to our emotions and feelings. Noticing all of the emotions and feelings that are arising. Uh, then we open our heart to the present moment. And again, I'm going to talk about more about this in depth as the presentation goes on. Uh, but I just to get through the stages for now. Uh, opening the heart to the present moment. And then we witness the entire experience. And in that witnessing, we become one with everything that arises. And again, I know that sounds pretty esoteric right now. I'm gonna unpack all of that in a few moments. Now, what I want to mention here though, is that this meditation practice, and really, I think every meditation practice, uh, ought to be done or should be done, needs to be done. I don't know the quite, quite the right wording here. Uh, but, well, should be done through the eyes of non-judgment. We never want to use meditation to beat ourselves up. Oh, I can't do this, I'm not good at this. That's, those types of uh, judgments aren't conducive to meditation. And so here is the opportunity to practice equanimity with ourself. We don't judge the thoughts, positive thoughts, negative thoughts, hurtful thoughts, desired thoughts, whatever. Every thought is just thinking. So we immediately are practicing this uh, practice of equanimity with ourself. So it's one of the great side benefits of this practice. And it was the great sage Krishnamurti who once said, the highest form of human intelligence is the ability to experience ourself through the eyes of non-judgment. Because the more we do that, the more we start to experience others through those same eyes, through the same eyes of non-judgment. And that is uh, one of the great ways that this meditation practice uh, helps us to alleviate our suffering. So it all starts with the breath, as I mentioned. And I'll mention the Buddha again. It, some of you already know that I, I like to teach uh, meditation uh, from a secular point of view. Uh, so I don't often mention the Buddha or, or uh, Brahma or Christ or any religious figure. And when I do mention uh, those people, I generally mention them from a secular point of view, as a teacher rather than as, a, as a, one to be worshipped or praised. Sorry if that offends anyone. So the Buddha mentioned mindfulness of the breath. And he said, this is the most noble dwelling. In fact, uh, when students would ask him, Buddha, why do you go on these three-month 
rain retreats. Uh, during the rainy season in northern India, the Buddha would go uh, meditate in the mountains by himself. There would be some other monastics with him, but it was considered to be a time of practice because the rains would wash out all the roads. It was hard to travel. And so he would say, I simply follow my breath or I rest with my breath. So one might think the Buddha would be doing something really exotic, right, for these three months, but resting with the breath, that's it. So quite an important practice. So we don't want to overlook that. Uh, so it starts there and again, nose to the abdomen, noticing how the body moves, the rhythm of the breath. And then, as I mentioned, we expand out through the body. And I did also mention that we go through the entire body rather systematically. If you like, you can go from the head to the feet. Now that, if you scan the body from the top of the head to the bottom of the feet, it works to lower the energy of the body like that. So if you find that you meditate and you're having a lot of thoughts, that's indicative of there being a lot of energy in the body. So that's why it helps to go from the top of the head to the bottom of the feet to kind of quell the thinking mind, to help pacify the thinking mind. Now, it might be that you find yourself nodding off and falling asleep frequently during meditation. That's actually quite normal as well. Uh, and so it might help to scan from the bottoms of the feet to the top of the head. That helps to boost the energy in the body, in the mind, in the heart, uh, which energizes and keeps us from nodding off. And so the idea, pardon me, the idea is to find the balance. And so you can kind of think of the mind moving on a track like that. And so this side of the track would be really energized and you'll find there's a lot of thoughts over there thinking, 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 thinking. And then you might go to the dull side of the track and you just fall asleep or get dull and foggy and hazy. So the idea is to find that balance point right in the middle. Not too much energy so that the mind is unworkable and so distracting that it's painful. And not too much relaxed that you can't focus or concentrate. So finding that balance point in the middle there like that. And it's a practice and it might be different. You might have a day or a week or a month where you're doing this. So, so scanning from the feet up can help alleviate that. Or you might find days or weeks where your mind is just really active as well. It's just something to work with. It's not that you're not meditating properly. That's just the human condition, as I mentioned. And again, each time you get distracted, Coming back, you're lifting those weights, lifting those weights like that. Now you'll find that more distractions will arise when you open your awareness to the body scan, so you're holding the breath, and then you're systematically going through the body. The mind will go off into thought very often, thinking, coming back to the present moment. Each time you do that, that's a success. You've done another rep with the awareness barbell. And so you can even congratulate yourself for recognizing that you're distracted and returning back. I find that some practitioners want to beat themselves up each time they're distracted. 
and then return, oh, I was thinking I can't do this right. That's not conducive, as I mentioned. So do the opposite, positive reinforcement. Thinking, coming back, yes, I'm back to the present moment. Right. Meditate. Okay, so that's mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of the body. I also want to mention, as you go through the body, you can label the experiences, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And this is kind of touching in with the emotional body a little bit early, kind of a foreshadowing for the internal field, if you will. And so like, for example, you start at the top of the head, there might be very little or no feeling at the top of the head, and that's fine. So that's a neutral experience, generally. Uh, unless you're craving to feel something, and that could be a, 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 an unpleasant feeling tone, if you're really craving. Or perhaps there's a really nice feeling tone. Ah, oh, that feels good. Pleasant, like that. And so shoulders might be sore from working out or something, or carrying stress or tension in the, in the abdomen, for example. That might be unpleasant. And so as we go through the body, simply noting pleasant feeling tone, unpleasant feeling tone, or neutral feeling tone. That helps us uh, unplug our emotional reactivity uh, from unpleasant experience, pleasant experience, or neutral experiences. So we'd like to do that as we go through our body as well. And then we expand out to include the sounds of the present moment, noticing all of the sounds. Usually in, at the New Life Foundation, there's quite a lush soundscape. You might have noticed that if you're at the morning uh, meditation sessions, birds and crickets and geckos and all sorts of things. Uh, what a rhythm, actually. It's beautiful, the lush soundscape of the present moment. In, in new life. Uh, so we embrace that, we experience that. And not focusing on any sound or labeling any sound. You don't need to say, oh, those are the birds, those are the crickets. But just to notice the texture of the soundtrack of the present moment. In addition, in addition to the sounds of the present moment, also noticing the silent space of the present moment, noticing the stillness inherent in the present moment. Now, I often get the question, well, you know, where is the silence? I don't hear it. All I hear are sounds. So you can kind of imagine before the sounds, right? Before these sounds emerged, before the birds woke up, before the crickets were there, there was silence. And where did that silence go? Well, silence can't go anywhere because silence doesn't occupy a location in time or space. Silence isn't a space-time experience. So it can't go anywhere. It can just get covered up by the sounds. Very similar, you might notice, to how the thoughts in the mind cover up the stillness in the mind. So as it is with the aural field, the sounds of the present moment cover up the stillness of the present moment. But that stillness is always there. And it can be quite beautiful to connect with that. 
So here we are in this meditation practice, we're experiencing the breath, the complete breath, the complete body, and the sounds and the silence of the present moment. Now generally when I work with people one-on-one, -on -one, uh, this is where we work. This is our stage, the starting, the opening stage of this practice. And again, there'll be distractions, there'll be thoughts coming and going, coming and going, lifting those weights, strengthening the muscle of awareness and attention. Also, what might happen is awareness might collapse down or focus on a particular sound or a particular sensation of the body or breath. Also quite normal. As human beings, we're conditioned to focus on different aspects that are arising in the present moment. We're not used to being this open, vast, expansive awareness. Uh, and so, collapsing down, maybe there's an ache in the shoulder. Awareness goes there, collapse down. Now when you're there, you're not experiencing the sounds anymore. You're not hearing the silence. You're not feeling the rest of the body. So when, and if you notice that in this practice, expanding out from there, I always think of it like a star exploding. Expanding out from there to include all of the present moment, wherever we are in the practice. Right now, it would be expanding out to including the rest of the body, back into the breath, the sounds, and the silence like that. Now, that's important for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it keeps us from pushing away whatever we're collapsed down on. We continue to embrace that, but then we include everything else. Remember, we don't want to use meditation as a form of repression. So expanding out from whatever we're focused on will include that in the practice. Lovely. Also, if it is a sore muscle, uh, you'll notice that if you're expanding out, or an itch, very common to have itches arising. If you expand out from, let's say, an itch, right? Maybe there's an itch on the nose. I get that sometimes. So this itch arises on the nose, right? And so we, as we expand out from the itch, you'll notice the flesh around it on the rest of the nose isn't itchy. It's actually quite comfortable. And the flesh in the face isn't itchy on the top of the head, like that. And so it alleviates the itch. It creates this spaciousness around the irritation. And so it allows the irritation to just be there, like that. And eventually, like everything else, it arises and passes, like that. And so that brings up a good topic, a good segue, if you will. What do we do with irritations, with aches, pains, things like that, uh, itches? Uh, and there are some teachers uh, that really say, oh, you have to sit through that. And that there is some benefit to that. I don't want to take away anybody's practice if, if people are practicing that way. That's okay too, uh, and that's using um, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral as labeling. When, when aches and itches arise, labeling those unpleasant uh, can be really relieving. But for me, I found more benefit uh, when, let's use the example of, again, an ache in the shoulder, right? So we're meditating and this shoulder starts throbbing. Ooh, that hurts, right? So before we move to alleviate that shoulder, maybe we roll it like that to try to 
make the muscle relax. Or even move in the mind, you know, trying to send energy to that shoulder, which never really works for very long, uh, to, to alleviate that experience. Um, before we move in any way, mentally or physically, ask yourself the question, can I rest with this? Can I rest with this muscle? Now, when you pose that question to yourself, you might very well experience the muscle relax or the body relax around that muscle. Beautiful. So the answer is yes, I can rest with this. Now, the answer might be no. This is very painful, it's very vivid, it will uh, distract me for the rest of the meditation, it will ruin the meditation practice, I have to alleviate this ache. Then, you know, move to adjust your body however you need to do to, to alleviate that sensation. Fine. Nothing wrong with that. And I like this example with the foot falling asleep, because oftentimes people get that when they're meditating, particularly on a cushion. Uh, you can move your foot, but ask yourself the question first, can I rest with this experience? Or can I rest with this? Now, the reason why we do that is here we're bringing mindfulness to the decision of pushing away discomfort and grasping at comfort. Now, typically that's a knee-jerk reaction. Typically, any time any discomfort arises, an itch in the nose, we immediately do that or the foot's falling asleep and we immediately move the ankle, right? And you'll notice this happening all the time in everyday life. You have an irritation in the back of the throat and you immediately go <clears throat> without thinking about it. That's normal. Now, the reason why it's important to bring mindfulness to this decision is you'll see if you analyze it or think about it just briefly, that how much suffering this habit causes by doing this unconsciously unconsciously pushing away discomfort and grasping at comfort. Here is the birthplace of addiction, right? We don't want what's arising in the present moment, and so we grasp at an experience, a substance, an, ob an object, uh, which we think will bring us comfort, right? We don't want that, we want this. We don't want that, we want this. And we're doing this habitually. And so in this meditation, very simple, can I rest with this? Bringing mindfulness to that decision of pushing away that discomfort and grasping at comfort. Now you can start to do this once you start doing this in meditation, it actually becomes quite natural to do this in everyday life. You start to notice Oh, I'm not comfortable with this, this situation. I'm not comfortable with uh, what I'm seeing on the news. I'm not comfortable uh, with that conversation I just had, or I'm not comfortable uh, lying on my back. Whatever it is, it could be so trivial, or it could be something really profound. But notice how you habitually start to move away and ask yourself first, can I rest with this? Now again, the answer could be yes, this isn't so bad, I can rest with this. The answer might be no, I can't rest with this, I need to move, I need to get up, I need to do something. But in this mindful state, you then 
reach for something or you move away from that discomfort with awareness. You're much less likely to move ahead and cause suffering for yourself and for others when you do that. So instead of reaching for that experience that distracts you, that you often reach for, you do something else. You call a friend or you go for a walk or you, um, whatever it is, you take a nap or whatever it is. Now you're bringing mindfulness to that motion so you can choose wisely rather than moving away from discomfort in the habitual manner. Very powerful, very important. Okay, so we're with the breath, body, and sounds now. And again, you'll notice lots of thoughts because awareness is large. We're not used to that. So collapsing down on thought, collapsing down on sensation, collapsing down on thought. Each time coming back to the present moment, you're lifting those awareness barbells. Beautiful. So once that settles in, and it'll feel something like going from a turbulent ocean to a calm pond in the mind. And once we get to that calm pond state, we then open our eyes and we take in the visual field into the meditation practice. Uh, now this can be quite challenging for some, particularly if you've had an established meditation practice where you only meditated with your eyes closed. It'll be, um, it might take quite some effort uh, to establish a habit of meditating with the eyes open. But once you do, uh, you'll find uh, there's some great benefit in this open eye meditation practice. First of all, it's the present moment. It is what's now, right? So when we meditate with our eyes closed, again, I don't want to talk smut about anybody's meditation practice. I do closed eye meditation as well, but I find great benefit in open eye meditation uh, because it allows what we cultivate in meditation uh, to be uh, more easily accessed in everyday life. Because most of the time in, in our life experiences, we have our eyes open. Uh, and so it, it, it kind of bridges that gap, so to speak. It allows us to access that type of meditative awareness, that type of stillness that we cultivate in meditation that allows that to be more accessible in everyday life. Also, one of the great benefits of open-eye meditation is we stop labeling what we see. As we go through it, as you can probably see on the camera, I'm scanning my visual field now. And I can do that and rest at the same time. And what you'll start to notice is that we almost always map out our experience with our visual world. So we walk into a room and we map it out. We say, uh, Buddha, candles, uh, shawl, windows, light, desk, uh, handsome man with a black shirt talking. <laughs> okay, maybe not. So we're, <laughs> so we're mapping out our experience. And we do this all the time. This is the human condition. Uh, a part of our Darwinian uh, karma, so to speak, is that uh, we're habitually ingrained to map out visually our experience like that. So we don't need to do that anymore. We don't need to map out our world uh, for fear of the 
tiger that's going to come and eat us or fear of any sort of danger. Uh, so particularly in meditation practice. So we can open our eyes and rather than mapping out each color, each object, each shape, we just rest in the experience of the visual field meeting our awareness. And you'll, it is a meeting. You'll notice as you open and rest into the experience, the visual field just unfolds in front of you, as long as you're not mapping it out. And it's okay, it, when you start this practice, undoubtedly, 99% of people who start open-eye meditation uh, start mapping it out, mapping out whatever is in front of them. That's just more thinking. You say thinking, you let that go, you come back to the present moment. And it might happen again, or you might notice your eyes focusing on different objects, particularly if there's something in the room that has an emotional component to it. You'll notice your eyes wanting to focus on that. Thinking, coming back, expanding out. Allow your eyes to then expand out, just like we did with the sore shoulder, expanding out from whatever you're focused on so that you're including that point of focus, but you're also including the visual field. Now, it's also quite natural for the visual field to be quite blurry when we do this practice. Uh, in time, the visual field will come into focus, and gradually you'll be able to actually experience the entire visual field as if you were focused on one point. That does take quite a bit of time, generally, uh, for the visual field to come into focus in that way. Uh, and we don't have to wait for that to happen before we move through the rest of the stages. Uh, but after some practice, some time, you start to experience more and more of the visual field uh, very vividly. Another one of the great benefits of this practice. Now, as all of this is unfolding, the mind will be thinking, returning, thinking, returning, lifting those weights, getting stronger and stronger with awareness and attention cultivating a heightened sense of awareness and attention. And eventually, that turbulent ocean again becomes a calm pond, and the practitioner can rest in the breath, the body, the sounds, and the silence, and the entire visual field. Like that. Now, also important in the visual field is this quality of empty space. Right? We so often overlook that negative field of the visual experience. Just like we overlook the silence in the aural field, just like we overlook the silence in the mind, we often overlook the emptiness quality of the visual field, which is quite silly actually, because the emptiness, it's, it makes up a large part of the visual field, is, is empty, right? So how much of reality are we missing when we're consistently focusing down on item after item, object after object, right? Okay, so again, we return back to that calm pond experience. Now that could take days, weeks, months, or years of practice. It doesn't matter how long. Each one of these stages is a complete meditation practice in itself. And we're getting, again, cultivating that awareness and attention. Each stage getting stronger and stronger. So insights might start to come up. Uh, this could happen when you're in the kitchen making a sandwich and all of a sudden, boom, oh right, that's why I do that, or that's why I'm like this. It could happen like that anytime, 
uh, at this point, uh, that type of experience is not uncommon. Now, don't worry if that's not happening for you again, uh, but some, it does happen for, for some practitioners that these insights start to spring up like that. Okay, the next stage of the practice, the internal field, feelings and emotions and thoughts. And so uh, many people that I work with consider this stage to be uh, kind of going into the lion's den, so to speak. Because up until this point, we've been taught to really uh, discard thoughts as they arise, right? We label them thinking and we discard it, we let it go. Thinking and we discard it, we let it go. Here we turn around and simply rest in that process. Even the label thinking is allowed to rest. And so, because here our awareness and attention has gotten strong enough so that we don't follow any thought. We don't need to label it anymore. Now, of course, there's going to be some thoughts that are sticky enough and we just go with it. Uh, it's very unusual that somebody can come to a half an hour or 45 minute meditation and not get distracted once. I, I actually don't know anybody uh, who has that experience. Um, so, uh, so don't worry uh, if that's happening. So I'll give an example of what resting and allowing thoughts to pass might look like. So you've come and you're sitting on the meditation cushion or the chair, whatever's comfortable. I use a chair. That's another story. Uh, so, and you're following the breath, the body, you're hearing the sounds and the silence, your opened eyes to the visual field. And then a thought comes up. Oh, this is a really lovely, different meditation practice. I wonder why I've never come across this before. And it just dissolves. There's no charge. Your mind doesn't need to follow it or create stories about it. So I'll give him another example. Wow, what a great retreat New Life Foundation put together. I hope they do another online retreat soon. No charge. It just dissolves just passes through our awareness like birds passing through the open sky. One more example. Wow, this is a long talk. I really should pause the video or maybe I should have gone to the toilet before he started. wonder how much longer. Fades away like that, very effortlessly. And you just rest. You just rest. There's no effort like that. And so that's what that looks like. And the reason why we're allowed to experience that is we don't believe in the thoughts anymore. We recognize that whatever arises passes, including our thoughts. And it's, it's when we believe in our thoughts, that's what keeps the thoughts uh, evolving and turning into stories. And it's the exact same thing with our emotions. So while we're meditating, an emotion might arise. Perhaps, let's say, anger. That's accessible to almost everyone. We all get angry from time to time. So maybe some anger arises during the meditation. And the experience of anger arises. If you let the thoughts go, the anger can arise and pass. You don't need to make stories about it. You don't need to indulge it or follow it. 
It just arises and passes the same way the thoughts did. Because what keeps emotions alive are the thoughts about the emotions. So if so, you feel the anger rise in the body and in the mind, and this might happen at the same time or almost at the same time. Anger comes up through the body and the mind says, oh, I can't believe that person did that to me, or I should call that person and you know curse him out or whatever. I'm thinking. And you say thinking, you let that go. Doesn't matter if it's gone on for 10 minutes and you're stewing in that anger. Whenever you recognize it, thinking. Let that thought dissolve. And then the anger, the sensations of the anger, the tightness of the chest or the abdomen, there might be clenching of the shoulders, clenching of the jaw, you might have tension behind the eyes. Those are all the physical, visceral experiences of anger. Eventually, once the thoughts are unplugged, that will dissolve too. And it'll come back, perhaps, but with a little less fury, because now you've touched in with some of the, some of the anger, you felt some of the anger. And so this is how, and this is a whole nother meditation practice, this is how we start to uh, resolve emotions through meditation. There are, by, by any way, if there's any curiosity about that, uh, I have meditations on my website, uh, which I'll mention at the end of the talk, uh, where you can uh, do this practice, just this practice, working with difficult or challenging emotions. Quite profound. Now, as we're opening to this stage of the practice, there will be more thoughts. That's normal. Uh, we're trying to assimilate more and more of the present moment. And so in that expanding out, uh, that requires more and more attention and awareness to hold all of that together. And that's why we're lifting those weights. Thinking, coming back. Thinking, coming back. Thinking, coming back. Awareness getting larger and larger and larger and larger. And eventually we can hold the breath, all of the body, hearing all of the sounds and the silence, the entire visual field, and the emotions can arise and pass, and the thoughts can arise and pass within that vast, open, spacious awareness. And we just rest in that openness like that. Now, if you're new to this practice, that might sound a bit inaccessible. Uh, this is a practice, and it does take time to cultivate, uh, again, that heightened sense of awareness and attention that's quite necessary to hold all of that in awareness at the same time. So you'll notice uh, awareness shifting around from maybe a thought, then to a sensation, then to a sound. Absolutely normal. Rest, take a breath, expanding out from whatever you're focused on back into the present moment, like that. Okay, this brings me to the stage of opening the heart. Beautiful. So here we practice opening our heart to this entire field of experience. And that might sound a little weird to some people. How does one open their heart to this entire present moment? What does that feel like or look like? Well, uh, if you've ever opened your heart to a loved one, which hopefully most of you have, or to a good friend, meeting a friend you haven't seen in a long time perhaps, or picking, I, I love kittens, picking up a kitten or a puppy, 
like that. Or it could be a very profound experience that you had where people were honoring you. Uh, that might have a heart-opening quality to it. Whatever it is, visualize that experience for a moment or just touch in with that experience for a moment. Feel your heart open. It'll be a warmth or flowing experience. And then hold in that open-hearted warmth the sensations of the breath. Welcoming each sensation of the body in to your awareness as if you were welcoming in a long-lost friend. Holding each sound and the silence of the aural field as if you were holding a kitten. Embracing each object and the empty space of the visual field as if you were embracing a loved one. Meeting each emotion, each feeling as if you were meeting a friend you haven't seen in a long time, but then let it go like that. And that's how we open our heart to the present moment. And again, there might be more thoughts coming up, quite normal. Each time we add another layer of the present moment, we're uh, using more and more awareness and attention. So each time we add another stage of the practice, lifting those weights, cultivating that heightened sense of awareness and attention. Now, when that turbulent ocean that is likely to arise in that stage of the practice becomes a calm pond, we then turn our awareness and attention to the one who's having this experience. And this is usually done by what's called insight questioning. And so you can pose the question, who is having this experience? Or where is the experiencer? Or who am I? And you turn that awareness in and you look and you rest. And you rest while you're looking. What you'll find is that you're looking at nothing, but there's nothing there. So you say, I'll use the example of who is having this experience. That's a really good insight question to start with. Who is having this experience? And you rest and you look inward and you see that there's nothing there. But then you might feel something. Oh, maybe that's me. Maybe that's the one who's having this experience. But isn't that just another experience? Who's having that experience? And then you turn and you look again. Oh, but maybe that's me, that tension there in the abdomen, maybe, or behind the eyes, right? That's me, that's the real me, the, un, the untouchable me. That's just some more experience. Turn again. Who's having that experience? And rest. And the idea is to hold that turning experience, that shift in awareness with the breath, the body, the sounds and the silence, the visual field, the uh, emotions and feelings. And you turn. Who's having this experience? And you 
shift and rest. And there you are. And as we do this practice, what starts to happen is you start to see that there's nothing there but just more experience. It's all experience that's arising. And so it becomes clear that what we feel to be a self, this self inside here, looking out at a world out there, this division of subject and object that causes so much suffering, starts to dissolve and break down. And we actually begin to have access to this experience of being a we. We become this oneness. So several years ago, I was living in New York City and a friend of mine called me up and he said, Hey, Chris, the Dalai Lama is going to be on Conan O'Brien tonight. You should tune in. All right, you know, want to see the Dalai Lama? That sounds great. You know, thank you. So hung up the phone and a few hours later, I turned the TV on. And there the Dalai Lama is in his orange robes, got his signature smile, sitting next to Conan. And Conan says, now, before I start the official interview, I just want to ask the question. Uh, what did the Buddhist monk say to the hot dog vendor? The Dalai Lama says, what? Make me one with everything. <laughs> oh, the whole audience groans. I groaned. And so I kind of bring up that moderately funny anecdote <laughs> as a way of not only lightening up this talk, because we kind of went into the deep end there for a moment, uh, but also uh, to point out that we can't make ourselves one with everything. And in particular, a teacher or a practice can't make you one with everything. In the same way that a teacher or a practice cannot wake a person who's pretending to be asleep. We're already one with everything. It's just that this illusion of being a fixed permanent entity inside this bag of skin, looking out at an objectified world, has become such a habit. It's literally become ingrained in the human fight-or-flight response. So we're still repaying our karmic debts to the Darwinian struggle. But that illusion, and this is what the Buddha's great insight was, that illusion is bringing great suffering because we habitually appropriate awareness to ourself. And then we move about our life interacting with an unaware world, with a world that we consider to be unconscious and deadened. And we do this with objects, 
things that we consider to be objects. We do it with people. We do it with situations. We can, we can then see, when I point it out like that, I think, uh, the type of suffering this is bringing. Now, I mentioned the Buddha. And again, I want to talk about the Buddha here, but only as a teacher, a meditation teacher, not as a religious leader or anything like that. Now, the Buddha, when he taught his first teaching and throughout his 45-year teaching career, he taught what's known to Buddhists as the Four Noble Truths. I consider them just four practices or four tasks. Um, and these are as follows. Life contains suffering. We suffer due to our emotional reactivity. That's number two, the second one. The third one is we don't need to do that. We can unplug our emotional reactivity, but it does take an expanded awareness, one of the reasons why we're lifting those weights, the principal reason. Uh, and uh, the fourth truth is that we can cultivate a way of life which allows our emotional reactivity to be unplugged. Now, I, I recognize this is a very secular uh, rendition of the four truths, or the four practices, whatever. Uh, but that's uh, how I find them to be most pragmatic, most useful. Hmm. So, when the Buddha gave this discourse, uh, he said at the onset that whatever arises ceases. All of our experience, and we've seen this in the meditation that I just outlined, everything that arises passes through our awareness. Like that. Like that. And whether it's a thought, a feeling, an emotion, um, a bird song, or a human body, or a planet, or a political system, it all will eventually arise and pass. Just sometimes very things, some things arise and pass very quickly like at the blink of an eye, and some things take many millennia. But everything that's subject to birth is subject to death. And I just mentioned that because now I'm going to outline how we can use these four truths in a meditation practice uh, and how they play into that. Okay, so real-life example. A few months ago, actually several months ago now, I was on board a cruise ship. I used to teach meditation and mindfulness on cruise ships. Uh, that's a whole other story for another time. Uh, and I was in a cabin, and my neighbor at that time, in the neighboring cabin, well, let's just say she must have been of the mindset that her taste in music should be my taste in music. Hmm. We've all had neighbors like that, right? So anyway, I'm meditating, as I would often do. I spend several hours a day meditating. So I'm meditating in my cabin. It's about 4.30 in the afternoon, beautiful. I can hear the ocean lapping against the side of the ship in this nice, peaceful place, watching things arise and pass. And all of a sudden, comes from next door. <laughs> and my chest is do, 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 do with the bass drum and my abdomen is with the bass, right? That's the first truth. Life contains discomfort. Life contains dukkha. 
Now then my mind, oh my goodness, I was, yeah, everything was so quiet a minute ago. What's happening now? Why can't they turn that music down? Don't they realize the walls are thin on this ship? Is that even music? What's wrong with the kids these days? I don't know what that is. That's the second truth. That's the suffering. Okay, so you notice there's a difference there. Our response to the physical experience, the sensory experience, and then the, the physical experience itself. That's the first truth, the dukkha, the discomfort. Then the mind, that's the second truth. That's the pushing away. I don't want this. I want that. I don't want this. I want that. Life, uh, we suffer due to our emotional reactivity. That's our reactivity. <laughs> But we don't need to do that, as the Buddha pointed out. And this is where that practice of labeling the thoughts, thinking, comes in so powerful. Say, oh, I'm thinking. All of those thoughts about the experience then dissolve. Come back, we rest in the present moment. We recognize we're able to let that go. We behold the ceasing, as the Buddha called it. We recognize that we can let our emotional reactivity go and rest back into the present moment. Beautiful. Now, because that feels good, that we didn't respond to that reactivity, I didn't call her up, I didn't say, hey, what are you doing? Turn that, you know, fill foul foul music off or bang on the wall or, you know, leave my meditation, slam the door behind me. Whatever my habitual reactivity would have been, I didn't embark on that path. I recognized that there was another way. Because that feels good, that I was able to not cause suffering for myself and for that person, we then begin to want to cultivate a way of life which allows this to happen more and more easily, more and more frequently. We study, we practice, we embark on this way of life. Now, traditionally, that's called the Eightfold Path, uh, but it can just mean a way of life which allows this unplugging of this reactivity to occur more and more frequently, more and more easily, like that. So some of the benefits of this practice. Now, I mentioned a few of the benefits earlier, but I really want to talk about some of the profound benefits of accomplishing uh, a complete, open, expansive awareness like this. Pardon me. <clears throat> so, we've started small, right? As I mentioned, the breath, right? Awareness is quite, is like, just like that. And there's, maybe there's a lot of thoughts. And so eventually that becomes calmed down and we expand through the body. Now awareness is getting quite a bit larger. We can hold all of the breath and the body together. And then awareness gets quite a bit larger like that and so forth. Now let's use uh, the example here of a toothache. We're going to talk about how this meditation practice is used to alleviate our suffering. Okay, another example rather, because that would, well, all of this has been about that really. Just driving the point home, I guess. So we have a toothache. And this is, again, another real-life example. This was one of the ways I used this practice. 
so I had an infected gum. If you've ever had an infected gum, you know that that can be quite intense. Okay, now if I had never meditated before, fortunately that wasn't the case, my awareness would have been this big, small. Quite, sorry, I'm holding it in front of my mouth. Small. <laughs> uh, so then you have a toothache like that, all of your thoughts are going to that toothache. So that's really all you can think about, right? When am I gonna take the next pain pill? When am I gonna to get to the dentist? When am I, how am I gonna to eat today? I got a mushy food, whatever it is. All of your thoughts are about this. It's all encompassing. So that, we start with the breath and maybe awareness stays about that small. Then we add the experience of the body, resting with the breath, the breath in the body, awareness getting larger. The toothache is actually quite the same size. Right? It's still vivid, still bright, still painful, but it bothers us less because including in our awareness, we include the toothache sensation, but we also include the sensations of the clothing on the skin, the weight of the body in the chair, the sensations of the feet against the floor, and so forth. So awareness is getting a little bit larger. It feels like that pain gets a little smaller. Now then we allow awareness to get expansive again. We add the sounds and the silence. Now awareness is actually quite large, it's including our whole sense of hearing. But the toothache is the same size, so it feels like the toothache is getting smaller, right? Because we can feel the toothache. Again, we're not repressing anything. We're not pushing anything away. We're not ignoring anything. We allow the toothache to be there. It'll probably even feel a little more vivid because we're not clenching against it. So we rest in the experience, the toothache, sensations of the clothing on the skin, the weight of the body in the chair, the feet against the ground. Uh, you might feel a breeze against your skin, that's great too. Also hearing the crickets, the birds, the cars passing by, whatever's in the aural experience. So you have all of that and the toothache. So getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, if you've worked with the visual field, the toothache will even get smaller. It'll feel smaller and smaller, like that. And I'll just get a prop here to draw, drive this point home. Pardon me. Thank you for sticking with me. I know this is a long talk. We're almost done. Uh, the candles are almost burnt out, so I know we're done. <laughs> Okay, so let's say this big gulp cup is my normal, natural awareness. Okay, and now I have that toothache, right? So uh, that toothache is gonna feel, it's gonna fill that cup. It's gonna feel huge. And again, that's all I'll be able to think about. So let's use the example of I have this cup filled with water and I put maybe six dashes of salt in that cup. Now, that water is gonna taste pretty salty, right? But let's say I have a pool of water as big as this room, which is quite large. And then I put six dashes of salt. I put the same amount of salt in that water. You wouldn't even notice the salt. You wouldn't taste it at all. And so the meditation practice, this meditation practice used as a pain management technique works in that exact same way. 
expanding out to include more and more of experience. Whatever is irritating us, whatever is aching us, whatever is bothering us gets smaller and smaller because our awareness gets larger and larger. And it should be noted that this works equally as well with physical pain and emotional pain. You have a heartbreak and naturally we collapse down on that experience. Uh, and again, we don't use this to repress anything. We let the thoughts about that experience go. When we come back, we feel the sensations of the clothing on the skin, feet against the floor. That emotional pain can still be there. Again, we don't repress anything, but it gets smaller and smaller. Our awareness goes out to the sounds and the silence. Uh, the emotional pain gets smaller and smaller like that. Beautiful and very profound practice. So that does bring me to the end of the talk today. I hope you found this at least somewhat entertaining, if not beneficial. Uh, if you are interested in taking up a practice like this, I have several guided meditations on my website. Uh, the website is entitled Such Sweet thunder.org. I've also written a book outlining this practice, and in the book I go into very, very fine detail uh, on each stage of the practice, giving a commentary on each stage. Uh, that book is also available on my website, but if you're interested in the book and you don't want to pay $10 uh, for the book, which I totally understand, don't worry, uh, that's why I'm offering this, uh, and you want a copy of the book, Send me your email address uh, through Messenger on Facebook or, or through my website. Tell them you watched the Dharma talk and you'd like a copy, a PDF copy of Such Sweet Thunder, and I'm happy to email those out for free. Um, yeah, my pleasure. Uh, again, all of the videos are also available on the website for free. They're also on YouTube, uh, so I'm not trying to sell anything here. This isn't an infomercial or anything. I really... Uh, I'm, a, I'm giving this talk today because this practice has helped me in my life in so many profound ways. I, I can't even begin to describe how profound this practice has changed my life. Uh, and I hope uh, that others can find the same benefit. Thank you very much for watching, for tuning in. Also, if there are any questions, or comments, uh, do feel free to message those along as well. Happy to answer any questions or comments. Thank you, thank you, thank you.